Matthew 28, 1 through 10 is our teaching text. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid and yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, they clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, but go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for the gift of community. Thank you that though some of us watch this alone in apartments or houses or we watch it with our immediate family, that in Christ we are bound in a way that that supersedes geography to this broader body of people all around the world who've come to call you Lord. And Jesus, because you now reign at the right hand of your Father, Pray that you will mobilize the Spirit to stir this word in our hearts that we might be people of resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were uh, directing this scene that we've just read in Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10, if you were directing this scene in a movie or if you were writing a screenplay for this moment, you'd want to make sure that you got every minute detail just right. Because in some ways, the entire gospel story, and you could also say the entire Old Testament leading to this, has been leading to this moment right here. And considering everything that Jesus has been through, and if you and our church have been walking through the events of Holy Week, going from Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, everything that people have been through, the emotional state of the audience, having witnessed Jesus' scourging and his crucifixion and his death and his entombment, you'd want to be sure to capture this moment just perfectly. Like squeeze every ounce of goodness and gold out of it that you possibly can. And I think about the first speech of characters in a story always tells you so much. Or, or some of the iconic lines that you think of in great moments in TV and movies. I love uh, The West Wing, a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin stuff. And Aaron Sorkin has this great line in the first episode when Martin Sheen, who plays President Jed Bartlett, first comes in. The words out of his mouth are, I am the Lord thy God. And it's just a great line. He's quoting uh, Exodus chapter 20. And then there's Val Kilmer in Tombstone, that really iconic scene where he's walking up and he surprises Johnny Ringo and he says, I'm your Huckleberry. And it's just chills because Val Kilmer is so good as Doc Holliday. Well, there's Bill Murray and What About Bob, who says there are two kinds of people in this world, those that like Neil Diamond and those that don't. My ex-wife loves him. Obviously, I do not have any references from the last, like, 30 years, but all of those are, like, great, iconic moments from characters. 
But have you ever considered what an anticlimactic uh, moment it is for Jesus? If you think about the first words that he says, like, like, what is it? Greetings. Jesus is like, oh, hey, I didn't see you come in. Like, greetings? That's the best that you can do? You had like, m- like eternity past to play in this moment, and you say, greetings. That's it. If I'm Jesus or am I, I'm like writing the screenplay of this moment and say, no, 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 Jesus, let's try that again. Now is when you drop, I am the resurrection and the life. Now is when you drop, I am the bread that has come down from heaven, a showstopper of a line. But Jesus instead goes with, greetings, don't be afraid. And then what's he saying next? Well, if you're going to follow the plot line of basically any other story of an apparently defeated but then vindicated hero you quickly hear and see a plan hatching to exact revenge on the bad guys or uh, to win over the crowds. But what does Jesus do instead? He says, when you see my friends, tell them to meet me at the lake, at Galilee where they first met each other. He advised them in this moment to leave the center of influence, to leave Caiaphas, the high priest, to leave Pilate, who ordered his crucifixion, to leave the crowds that had followed him and, and made, him, made such a name of him, and to go back instead to where everything started, to this rural fishing community that was out of the way. Jesus, in his resurrected state, in this moment, demonstrates absolutely no impulse to flex or to strut, or to prove himself, or to dazzle. In this moment where in any other story they'd be going after the high priest and the, the, the teachers of the people and the Sanhedrin and Pilate and the crowds who said his blood on us and our children, Jesus does nothing like that. He's unhurried, he's non-anxious, he's calm, and he's confident. For a guy who in the next chapter, actually in this very chapter, is about to hand off the Great Commission to the disciples, admonishing them to tell who? Oh, the entire planet that he is Lord over all. In this moment, he is surprisingly chill. He's about to give them the Great Commission to go tell all the world about him. Oh, and teach everyone the stuff that he said. But Jesus in this moment is unhurried and non-anxious and calm, and confident. And it makes you ask, what does he know that we don't know? I think it's this. This is what we're, we're contemplating every year as we retell the story of resurrection and what it means for us. That in and through Jesus' resurrection, the operating system for all of the cosmos has inalterably and irrevocably changed. That in some mysterious way beyond our comprehension, in his resurrection and in his forthcoming ascension, which is less about an elevator ride to heaven and more about Jesus assuming the throne at the right hand of the Father, that in and through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that God reigns over the earth. And that the threat of rival powers has been neutered. And so in this moment, Jesus feels no need to flex. He can confidently and patiently, without hurry or anxiety, move forward and go about his business, assured that his kingdom has prevailed and will ultimately prevail. Greetings. He's unhurried, non-anxious. He's calm 
and he's confident. Now, Jesus had warned his followers. We find this in John chapter 16. He said, look, I'm going to go back to him who sent me. But very truly, I tell you, it's good for you. In fact, it's better for you that I go away. Jesus says, is it better for us? It's, it's better for us if he's not here? How often do we behave as if that's true? As if Easter is true? If you, be, if you ask me, I'd be inclined to think it would be way, way better to have Jesus here in person. It'd be like, Jesus, I don't want to preach the Sermon on the Mount. You preach the Sermon on the Mount. You wrote it. You, you would do it so much better than me. But he says, no, it's better that I go away. It's for your good. Why was this the case? Why could Jesus be so unhurried and non-anxious and calm and confident in the face of the great task of the Great Commission and the healing of the world? Why could he be this, this way? I think two reasons. One, he had tremendous confidence in the gift of the Holy Spirit that was to come. Jesus said, it's better that I go away. Why? So that the Father will send the Spirit. It's better that I go away so that the Spirit of the living God that raised Jesus from the dead might dwell in you. Not only in this this sanctuary made of of great stone like they'd enjoyed in in generations past or the tabernacle that had come through Moses. The Spirit of the living God which caused fire to be consumed on the altar would now dwell in the heart of all who called Jesus Lord and in the collective gathering of the church. It's better that I go away because Jesus was confident in the gift of the Holy Spirit to come. The Spirit, as he said in the Gospel of John, that would guide us into all truth and would remind us of the words of Jesus. I think the other reason Jesus could be so unhurried and non-anxious and calm and confident in view of the history that was to come was that he had tremendous confidence in his own divine advocacy. His own divine advocacy that at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, he could and would in no trite way orchestrate the universe, orchestrate the world in such a way that Paul could say that in all things God is working for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. That in this divine position of privilege at the right hand of the Father, Jesus serves us, serves his people by repurposing the effects of evil and sin and tragedy into instruments of good for us. Jesus had confidence in view of his own divine advocacy for us. And in those ways that we don't yet see, Jesus will prove to orchestrate human history in such a way that everything will be all the more beautiful for having once been so sad. It'll be a divine symphony of majors and minors woven together into this score of redemption that he is composing. Jesus knew as a result of his own resurrection and his coming ascension and intercession at the right hand of the Father, that the universe was now charged with the reality of resurrection, that the entire cosmos was pregnant with the possibility of renewal, and therefore we needn't fear. We needn't be hurried. 
We needn't behave as if everything depends on us because, as my bishop Todd Hunter says, the Son of God is now at the right hand of God, superintending creation toward its intended telos. He's guiding human history toward its ultimate fulfillment when he returns in victory and he wipes away every tear from our eyes and he heals the nations. How would we behave differently and what would our world look like if everyone who followed Jesus believed and behaved as if that were true? If the reality of the gift of the Holy Spirit that caused such confidence in Jesus and the gift of His divine advocacy for us at the right hand of the Father were true, that the world is pregnant with the possibility of renewal and alive with the reality of resurrection, how might we behave differently if this truth saturated our very being? One of the things that the Lord has been teaching me lately and quite painfully has been that I have practiced a kind of functional atheism through well-worn patterns of, of hurry and self-reliance. And for me, these patterns of hurry and self-reliance are exceptionally difficult to shake. I've been in a hurry, I think, since I was 17 years old and I got my first truck and my ability to go wherever I wanted to. I was hurried both in my calendar and also hurried in my heart, rushing, 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 impatient to get things done, uh, to enact my agenda. And in retrospect, looking back the nearly 20 years to age 17, I see how I've missed out on quite a lot in life in my hurry to get on to the next thing. And I'm sure there are a ton of you who could relate to this. Many of us live truly busy lives. Like we're so, so occupied like and even if we're not actually busy we feel busy because in rushing from thing to thing to thing like in those intermediary moments we cram those moments that could be quiet and, and, and moments of solitude with information we know about every terrible thing that's going on in every country in the world that information is at our fingertips we know every stupid thing all of our friends are doing and posting to social media right now we cram our lives with noise, and whether we are or just feel it, like busyness defines us. And we no longer know what it looks like to be quiet. And in this always loud and busy world, this frenzy of a world, we become frenzied ourselves. And the invitation to take a posture of unhurried confidence that Jesus models here can in all candor feel unreasonable or even naive. And then comes the coronavirus into a world of people addicted to hurry. When life for many of us comes to a grinding halt and the activities that occupied us and the routines that defined our everyday life come to a grinding halt and a kind of forced Sabbath is thrust on all the world. And without minimizing or, or denying the consequences to the economy or the significant loss of, of, many, uh, of, of life or many personal hardships for individuals and families. This hiatus, this like the shelter-at-home order that's certainly been in effect in Oklahoma and Tulsa and all around the world has not been without unforeseen blessings. I don't, this is probably true for you, but seeing friends and families taking walks together. Like, I didn't even know that guy was my neighbor because I've only seen him in a car and the garage closes when he comes in, but we're seeing people take walks 
We're seeing friends reconnecting over Zoom or social media. Neighbors are meeting each other for the first time. Unread and dusty books are making their way off of bookshelves and people are thinking, oh yeah, that's why I bought that in the first place. There have been more naps. There's been more time in fresh air, more time doing yard work, probably less work for many people or certainly less productive work for many others. And even in response to the virus itself, you think about places like hospitals where, uh, where, or, or cities like New York where things can get really gruesome. There's beauty there too. Uh, you know, Mr. Rogers always said in tragedy, look for the helpers. And man, the helpers have been just so magnificent in these moments. Seeing in New York at 7 o'clock every night, people are going out of their windows and banging pots and pans and cheering on nurses and maintenance workers and doctors and techs as they're coming off of their shift. Thinking about like people coming into grocery stores and giving thank you notes to workers who themselves are on the front line and many of them beginning to get sick as a result of the virus. Thinking of doctors and nurses not only like putting on their mask and all of their layers of this, but also putting on the full armor of God and going into the hospitals like to serve the vulnerable alongside Jesus. Even in the places where it's the most gruesome, we can't help but see beauty. And while I hope like all of you that this season comes to an end, I think it's true that when it ends, there will certainly be things that we miss. And, and why on earth would there be such sweetness in the middle of a global pandemic where so many have lost their lives and so many are on the verge of, of, being, of exposure? Well, for me, it's because we have at the helm of the universe a God who delights in working for good even in evil situations. A God who delights in bringing beauty out of ugly things. For me, it's because we live in a world that's charged with the reality of resurrection and pregnant with the possibility of renewal. And as much as we try and at times even want to give in to fatalism and despair, we just can't because there's so much beauty in unexpected places. Yes, we could ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? But we also ask the question, why do good things happen at all? And why is our world so filled with beauty, with goodness, and to see such like, like potential, even in people who don't know God? Man, they're made in His image, and they can't help but shine brightly from time to time. Even when we want to give into fatalism, beauty won't allow us. For Christians, the belief and the hope in resurrection is no mere attempt to find a silver lining in a dreadful situation or to exercise the power of positive thinking. There's an article on NPR yesterday called Hope Isn't a Strategy. It was talking about COVID-19, and I certainly understand the skeptical objection that just like hoping things will go great doesn't mean they're going to. Henry Cloud distinguishes between a hope and a wish, uh, a, a hope is always tethered to some kind of objective reality, whereas a wish is just blind optimism. So I could say, I really wish to run a marathon someday. Well, do you have running shoes? No. Do you run at all? No. Do you have a training plan? No. Do you have a training partner? No. Well, keep on wishing, but that is probably never going to happen. If a person said, on the other hand, I hope to run a marathon, and then they, you know, uh, get shoes and they get a training partner and they get a training plan and they begin to actually exercise 
Well, those hopes are anchored to objective realities. There are things that they have done that demonstrate cause for belief that this marathon might actually happen. Now, wishing isn't a strategy, but for Christians, hope that's tethered to an objective reality is our only strategy, is our greatest source of optimism in this world. Hope has to be built on something solid. For Christians, the most important fact in history is the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The most important fact in history for people who follow Jesus is his bodily resurrection from the dead. This unexpected event that rewrote human history. And it's this objective fact that anchors our hope. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the most likely and logical explanation for the unlikely explosion and endurance of the Christian movement through two millennia plus. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead validates the person, the teaching, and the miracles of Jesus, everything that Jesus said of himself. It retroactively affirms the tradition of the Old Testament that Jesus saw himself to be fulfilling to be living into, and it also validates his claims about the present and the future, all that's yet to come. Because of this then, hope for followers of Jesus is our strategy because it's anchored to the objective reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus invites a kind of patient and resilient optimism in the hearts of those who follow him. That while there will always be objective reasons for despair, too, because we remember the resurrection, there's plenty of cause for a resilient and a stubborn optimism. Trusting that in the wisdom and the kindness and the timing of God, all things will completely come, come under the rule of Him who defeated death. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. These are the words of Paul, who joyfully suffered beatings and beratement, shipwrecks and homelessness, having learned the secret of being content in all situations. Learning from Jesus and learning in view of the resurrection of Jesus that it's possible to live an unhurried and non-anxious and calm and confident life, even in great turbulence and disturbance. And if this kind of poise, of quiet confidence, of unhurried non-anxiousness is an option, if it's something that's available in our fast-moving and worried world, I want in on it. If Jesus believed that it was better for him to go away that we might be given the Spirit, if Jesus believed that it was better that he go away so that he could intercede for us at the right hand of God, and he, the hope in his heart was that we might be unhurried, non-anxious, calm, and confident people, then I want in on that. If, in fact, our world is charged with the reality of resurrection and pregnant with the possibility of renewal, I don't want to miss it because I insist on being the captain of my own ship. There's another way. Jesus said, it's better that I go away. Unhurried, non-anxious, calm, and confident do not describe me many days of the week. And those four words also don't describe me 
in the middle of the coronavirus, man, where, gosh, things are being exposed in each of our hearts as we're finding all this alone time and we're, we're disoriented by the lack of routine. And yet I think it's the case for those of us who are most keenly aware of our anxiety and our lack of poise, our lack of calmness and composure in the middle of this, that God might be inviting us to tether ourselves again to the reality of resurrection and to live in light of the confidence Jesus had in the gift of the Spirit in His intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. I just want to ask you and ask, ask all of us, do you know this kind of soul-level rest? When you think about your life, do you know that you're okay? I mean, genuinely. Like, you're genuinely going to make it. Are you, do you know that you're okay? Do you feel in, like, the deepest parts of you, well, yeah, you're not perfect. We're all striving to be healthy. It's hard work to be healthy. But at the core of who you are, like, the deepest, like, existential reality for you, do you know that you're okay? Do you have a sense of serenity or calmness, an absence of anxiety, a freedom to, to slowly embrace each moment rather than hurrying through it, an ability to be, to be calm and confident in view of the bigger picture reality that Christ has already won for us, do you have that kind of soul-level peace, or are you growing into it? I want to tell you what I'm telling myself today, reminding my own heart today that this is true. This is our story. And we want to go all in on the objective reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and let our souls feast on the implications of this truth, that we do not have to be victims forever of anxiety and fear. We do not have to be hurried, always trying to make a name for ourselves or rushing on to the next thing, but we can live gently and lightly and calmly, living and working from rest because He has done the most meaningful work of all through His death and His resurrection and ascension. I want to remind you, what I'm reminding myself, that this kind of life is available. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, worn out and tired, anxious and afraid. Come to me, and I will give you rest. This gift on a silver platter. Notice where the action is happening there. We come, but He gives. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Picture two, like bison, two oxen saddled up in a yoke together. Watch how I do it. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in spirit, and in me you're going to find rest for your souls. The resurrected Son of God is now at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, delighted in this moment to send you the Holy Spirit, to give you the gift of divine rest. On the seventh day, He rested and He blessed it, and we can, we can live out of this kind of blessed rest, this unhurried, non-anxious, calm, and confident posture. Not because we are the most poised or, or great people in the world, but because of what he has done, tethered to the objective reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
we can learn from him how to live like him. And for a worried and a weary world, that is really good news. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in spirit, and in me you'll find rest for your souls. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we honor you as our resurrected King. Worship you, Lord Jesus, that now at the right hand of the Father, you live, you reign. In the fullness of time, we hope with confidence that you will demonstrate the full capacity of your reign over all the earth when you put all of your enemies under your feet and defeat our greatest enemy of death. When you come to wipe away every tear from our eyes, to renew and to heal the earth and to reign among us forever. Would you anchor our hearts today in view of the reality of your resurrection that we might be people who are unhurried, savoring every moment of the life that you've given us, non-anxious, taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ because through the Spirit we've been given the mind of Christ calm, like Jesus sitting in the boat in the middle of the storm, relaxed and able to even take a nap, and confident, Lord Jesus, not in ourselves because we're weak, we're learning, but confident in you. Remember, Scripture says that he who began a good work in us will complete it. We cooperate with this work and enjoy this work and not hurry this work, being patient in you who is enormously patient with us. All this we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.